0: Thank you, Brian. Let me pray for us once again as we uh, go to the word of the Lord together. Father, we thank you for what you've ordained to be written, both in this passage that Brian read 700 years before Christ came, and in the passage that we're considering, written by an eyewitness a few decades after Christ was ascended. God, you have preserved this for us, and so, Lord, we pray that as we consider your word together, you would open our minds and our hearts as we humbly come before you. Lord, help me to be faithful to your word. We ask this in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you have your copy of God's word, why don't you open to the book of John? Uh, chapter 19, and we're going to begin around verse 16. <clears throat> and if you don't have uh, your own copy of Scripture, you can use one of the pew Bibles in front of you. It's around page six or 768. You can turn there. We are gonna, there will be some verses on the screen, but we're going to go back and forth a bit, and I want to encourage you to have, have something you can look at as well. <clears throat> but while you're turning there, I've been thinking this week about coronations, because of the chapter that we're looking at, and, and if you follow anything over on the other side of the pond, as they would say, the, the new King of England is going to be coronated next year. In fact, May 23rd, to be exact. And as with all things royal, it will be a big public affair, right? Leading up to this point, King Charles has had years, decades of training, of learning, of making mistakes and learning from those mistakes and growing and figuring out what it would be, his whole life has been preparing him to be the king of England. And on the day of his coronation, he will make a sacred vow before God, before the Church of England, and all those who are watching to carefully and faithfully represent his nation, to lead, in some ways, his nation. And this has been anticipated for some time and yet it has taken on new urgency now that the queen has passed a few weeks ago. And now in the British system, <clears throat> there's this natural passing of the monarch, uh, monarchial baton from one generation to the next. It's fairly peaceful. I mean, there have been times in history when it hasn't been. And, and yet most people have only ever known this one monarch in, in uh, England. And I think if God grants many of us a full number of years, I suspect that this will not be the last transfer of power over there that we see. But when it comes to the coronation of the King of Kings, when it comes to the coronation of Jesus Christ, his is unlike anything else we see. His is different. Sure, he's had years of preparation and we've studied a lot of that as we've read through the book of John and and considered what is in here. And as we saw last week, he was given a crown, not unlike this one. And they put royal robes on him and they began to mockingly bow down and worship him. And today we get to witness his parade king charles will have a parade i'm sure jesus had a parade and when he came to the end of his parade he was seated on a throne unlike any other throne a throne that no earthly king would want to sit on and that is a throne of wood <clears throat> so as i said we're in john chapter 19 verse 16 and just to catch us up, Jesus has, had, had been arrested the night before. He'd been arrested sort of last night, if you will. He had been on trial before the religious leaders. Last week, we saw him on trial before the political leaders. And three times, the political leader, Pilate, said, You're innocent. I don't want anything to do with this guy. You're innocent. And yet, he was manipulated, and he was almost coerced into declaring that he would go to the cross that Jesus would go to the cross. So let's read a portion of this again. This won't be on your screen on the screen, but look in John chapter 19 beginning in verse 16. We'll actually begin in the second part of 16. So they referring to I believe the Roman soldiers took Jesus. And he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him with two others, one on either side, Jesus between them. And Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of, of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Well, many of us have seen movies and images depicting crucifixions. I ha- I think it's helpful for us to understand it, and I'm not going to go into all the gory details so as to save our minds that anguish. But you see, one of the interesting things is John is the only disciple that hung around, that stayed long enough to be an actual eyewitness. And yet, of all of the other disciples, he is the only, he gives us the least amount of information about what happened. Merrill Tenney in his commentary said, John, who alone of the disciples witnessed it, said the least about it. And yet we have to recognize, he goes on, in a day when crucifixion was still a current method of execution, it would have been all too familiar to need description and too horrible a thought to deserve elaboration. So let's understand crucifixion just a bit. You see, once once Pilate made that pronouncement, once he declared that Jesus would be crucified, to the cross you will go, he would be handed over to roughly four Roman soldiers. And, And Typically, the one being crucified began with a beating or with a flogging. Then this was not a, uh, you know, the Romans had three variations on flogging. and We talked, I think, a little bit about that last week. And Jesus had already been beaten. We don't know which one he got. But if he had one of them, there's a good chance he got the second one. Or he got the most severe one here a second time. Yet John doesn't elaborate on that. But the one being crucified was beaten. And flogged. And then the victim would carry the, the crossbeam, this, this piece of wood, the whole piece here, he'd carry it on his back and be marched through town in a very circuitous route. And most likely, that placard where, where Pilate said Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, would be, either be hung around his neck, so he's carrying it like this, walking through town, and everybody can see the, the judgment that the criminal has. Or, or someone would walk in front of him bearing that judgment. But then, thirdly, once they got to the place where he was to be crucified, he would be stripped completely naked. He would be nailed to the crossbeam that he had been carried on. And then he would be hoisted up. Hoisted up for everyone to see. You see, this was where they did this typically was by a busy road so as to inflict the most shame. So not only is he walking through town and everyone's seeing, oh, shame on you, but now he's laying out there naked, beaten, nailed to the cross. And then finally, like I said, he would be hoisted to the vertical beam and then his feet would be nailed to the vertical beam. It was a gruesome death. A lot of times we think of crosses as being very tall, but commentators say it probably wasn't much different than this one, just high enough so that it would be above people's heads so people could see who that was. Whatever the case, crucifixion was a horrible means of death. It was reserved for slaves and criminals. And according to the Lexham Bible Dictionary, Cicero described crucifixion as the cruelest and most terrible punishment. Josephus, the great Jewish historian, called it the most pitiable of deaths. You see, the crucified person would sometimes be on the cross, depending on on what was happening in their body, they would be on the cross sometimes for days, exposed to the elements, exposed to that shame. And yet we know that Jesus, in his case, only lasted a few hours, and I think largely in part because of his beating, but I think largely because of the spiritual significance of what he was going through, the spiritual significance that Brian read about. But before Jesus died, John records a few of his words. You see, from there on the cross, he sees his mom and several other women around by his feet. And he sees his mom and he sees John and he he sees his mom and he says... Uh, In John 19, 26 to 27, when he saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. You see, one of the things that was common for people on the cross to do was kind of deal with their final responsibilities on earth. Jesus, being the firstborn son, was intended to care for his mom. At this point in his life, his brothers and sisters likely did not believe in who he was. He was just some wacky old older brother who had some strange things in his head. And I think it wasn't until after the resurrection that Jesus' family came around. So he had a responsibility to his mom. And there's his disciple, his beloved disciple, who he gives responsibility to care for his mom. But then secondly, John records that Jesus expressed thirst in John 19, 28 to 29. It says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, he said said, And to fulfill Scripture, I thirst. A jar of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And then finally he says in verse 30, It is finished. Then John records, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It's very interesting that in Greek, that word that we get translated, gave up, nowhere else in Greek literature does it refer to someone giving up their life. It actually means handing over indicating that when Jesus was good and ready, when he felt like he was fully done, he handed over his spirit. Some speculate that it was at that time that John thinks Jesus was giving the Holy Spirit to us. But whatever the case, Jesus was there and he gave his life. He handed over his last breath. But I want us to focus for the remainder of our time on Jesus' final words when he... Said it is finished, and it kind of begs the question: What is finished? What was accomplished when Jesus breathed his last breath there? And so, what I want us to do is think through all some of the things that we've learned throughout our study of the Book of John, because ultimately, you know, we have to we have to look in the broader context of Scripture, but we have to begin with the context in which we are studying. And so, John put things together in a way. And so if you want to take notes, here's where the blanks in your outline begin. First of all, I think the signs are finished. You see, the cross and the soon coming resurrection are the culmination of all the signs about which John has been communicating. You see, if you remember, John chose several signs as a means of pointing people to Jesus, saying, hey, look, he did this. This was his first sign. This was another sign. This was another sign as a way of saying, hey, guys, pay attention to who this is. Gary Burge, in his commentary, said that in his death, Jesus provides the gift that every other sign promised. They're all pointing to something, and that something, I believe, is the cross. So let's think about this for a second. In John chapter 2, Jesus changed the water into wine at a wedding. But here at the cross of Christ, we see that Jesus is the true wine of fellowship with God. He is sanctifying us. By paying for our sin, we are now ushered into fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. In chapter 4, Jesus healed the son of an official from a great distance away. If you remember, he was about 20 miles away, and the guy said, Jesus, come. And Jesus said, go, your son will be healed. And it was at that moment, 20 miles away, that his son was healed of his Deadly disorder. And yet here at the cross, Jesus is the eternal healer for the curse of our sin. We're thousands of miles and millennia away from when Jesus died on the cross. And yet that is sufficient for us today. We saw in John chapter 5, Jesus healed an invalid man on the Sabbath, demonstrating what true life-giving rest would look like. And here on the cross, Jesus provides eternal rest from the toil of our sin. We still deal with sin in our body. We still deal, but we no longer have that eternal consequence. We no longer have that eternal judgment Jesus has covered. And there is no need for us to to toil and be in anguish over that. In chapter 6, Jesus fed 5,000 people with a a few small loaves of bread and some fish. And at the cross, Jesus shows that he is the eternal bread of life, providing eternal sustenance for billions. And then later on in chapter 6, Jesus walked on water, demonstrating his power over creation. And at the cross, Jesus gave up his life as a substitute for yours and mine. And then return from life, demonstrating power over death. The one thing that none of us can do on our own. Sure, people have come back to life after brief momentary parts with death. But Jesus came back on his own volition because of who he is. In chapter 9, Jesus healed a man who was born blind, overcoming a medical condition that could not be addressed. If you remember, being born blind, his eyes simply didn't have, this man's eyes didn't have the capacity to, to see anymore. He, Jesus, healed what had never worked in the first place. And so here on the cross, Jesus healed our spiritual infirmities, a feat that we could not overcome. No amount of good deeds or religious actions can atone for us. And we can try to be as good as we want, and we're never going to get there. And yet Jesus, in one move on the cross, healed that, that which is broken, And finally, in chapter 11, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And we presume that eventually Lazarus did die again. But Jesus, when he died on the cross, he was raised to life and now is seated at the right hand of God, granting us hope for eternal life. All of those signs pointing to the cross of Christ, the signs are finished. The only one that's gonna come is the one that will happen three days after this chapter that we're looking at today, the one that Ermal is going to talk about next week. And so just as signs on a highway might give us direction, so too John has been revealing some of Jesus' works as signs pointing to his nature and true identity. And all of these signs, I believe, point most glo- to the most glorious and shameful work. And they've been culminated in Jesus on the cross. But secondly, not only are the signs finished, but the coronation is finished. You see, some commentators referred to chapter twelve to twenty in the section of John that we're in as being Jesus' coronation. You see, when kings of old would come to power, they would often work to solidify that power. Some would go to war. Some would have their enemies killed. Some would have their predecessors kin. If you remember looking in the book of Judges and, and so many other places and kings, people, it was being, becoming king became, became a very deadly profession, both for the kings and for all their families. But Jesus, as he steps to the throne of eternity, his enthronement is different. He obediently lived the life that God had called him to, and he was faithful to the very end. He taught the ways of God. He perfectly lived the life that God calls all of us to live, the life that we are so fall, far short in living. And then, as he promised in John chapter 3 and chapter 12, he was lifted up. He was elevated in order to draw all humanity to him. And in this process, Pilate gave him the title, King of the Jews, and he did so in three languages. And I want you to think about this. He did so in Latin because in Latin, that was the language of the the army. That was the language of the soldiers. So they knew, hey, this was the decree. This was the legal language. It was in Latin. And then it was in Greek signifying that, that was this, he was king of the Jews, but everybody spoke Greek. That was the common language. Some commentators said that was the lingua franca. That was what everybody, just like we all speak English. We don't speak King James. We don't, most of us don't speak French or another language. It was the language of everybody. And then he, was also, he also wrote it in Hebrew or Aramaic, which was the religious language spoken by the Jews. Don Carson notes in his commentary that writing Jesus of Nazareth in those three languages clearly delineated the charge of sedition because that's what, that's what the Jews are trying to say. Hey, he's, he is undermining Rome by calling himself king. We have no king but Caesar. And so by calling himself king, he, essentially by declaring that Jesus is king in Latin, Pilate is saying, hey, you're charged with sedition. But it's also a vengeful act toward the Jews by writing it in Hebrew because the Jews manipulated Pilate into crucifying Jesus. This was Pilate's last act of control to say, hey, I'm still in charge here. But then thirdly, Carson says it confirms God's plan. The Lord Jesus is indeed the king of the Jews. The cross is the means of his exaltation and the very manner of his glorification And even this trilingual notice may serve as a symbol for the proclamation of the kingship of Jesus to the whole world. Gary Burge, in his commentary, said, This king is not a provincial ruler, but a supreme monarch whose authority now sweeps up those people speaking foreign tongues. And if you remember last week, when Pilate had Jesus flogged for the first time, he was mocked and ridiculed and worshipped as king by the soldiers, given that crown of thorns and a purple garment. And now he's sitting on a throne called a cross. And then once he died, he was given a kingly death. They given a kingly burial. Look at chapter 19, verses 38 to 42. It says, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away the body. And Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. And now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Do you remember what Brian read? That he would die almost a royal death? And here, 700 years later, Jesus is buried like a king. In fact, Burge says in his commentary, at great expense, a wealthy man provided a tomb, no amount, no doubt among other wealthy family tombs on the fringes of Jerusalem. And then he says, at great expense, a religious leader brought a tremendous amount of burial spice to, to Jesus' grave. S- such cost was customary for, for Israel's king's. Jesus was given a throne, a crown, royal garments, and then he was given a king's burial. But thirdly, we see that the Passover is eternally finished. If you've noticed over the last couple of weeks as we've been reading through these few chapters in John, John has referenced Passover several times. In fact, let me just take us back to a few, uh, for a few moments. Passover was initially instituted in Egypt. Several a couple thousand years before Jesus came. You see, the Israelites were in Egypt. They'd been there about 400 years. They were now slaves in Egypt, and, and the, the Pharaoh, the king in charge, forgot about all their other good leaders. And so he was treating them with contempt. And so as a means of taking the people out on the, you know, God has this big battle, if you will, with, with the king. And so he institutes Passover and he tells everybody, I want you to kill a lamb. I want you to put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. I want you to roast it. Don't boil it. You need to roast it and you need to eat this. And then the angel of death, when he sees the blood on the doorpost, will pass over. But every house that did not have that, the firstborn child was taken. And so this became an annual celebration, a reminder. And you see, if you remember in the beginning of John, uh, of John's gospel, John the Baptist referred to Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And here, John the evangelist, the author, seems to be equating Jesus as the eternal Passover Lamb. And just as the Lamb needed to be unblemished, so too was Jesus. He was perfect. And just as the lamb, in fact, the Old Testament says the lamb's bones should not be broken. And here, Jesus, in fulfillment of the prophecies about his life, his bones are not broken either. Look at what John writes in John 19, 31 to 34. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate, That their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other man who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. And then jumping down to verse 36, for these things took place that scripture might be fulfilled. Not one, of his bo- not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. I found this interesting. One of the other correlations between Jesus' crucifixion and Passover is that the Passover was intended to be eaten quickly. You see, back in, in Egypt, what was going to happen after the angel of death passed over and that was that horrible night, the next morning, everybody would get up and they would be essentially kicked out of Egypt. They would have to leave in haste. And so they were in, in, instructed to eat. In fact, Exodus 12, 11 says, In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened and your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. This is the Lord's Passover. Well, think about this. In the process of these events surrounding Jesus' death, he was betrayed, he was arrested, he was tried, he was condemned, crucified, and buried in less than 24 hours. Is that justice? I don't think so. Is that fast? Definitely. And it's interesting that it was on this very same hill that Isaac even centuries before the Passover, was forced to carry wood for an altar that he and his father Abraham would build. And and if you remember, Isaac asked his father, he said, Dad, we have the wood and we have the fire, but where's the lamb? And Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb. And so they built the altar and Isaac was laid down on top of that altar and tied up. And as Abraham raised his knife, to take his son's life in obedience to God, God stepped in and said, hey, stop. I know that you love me. I know that you will obey me. And he provided a, a ram that was caught in the thickets close by. And in, in, in fact, many Israelites believe that that sacrifice happened on the, in the month of Nisan, a Jewish month, on the 15th day of Nisan. Passover is the 15th day of Nisan. Jesus was crucified on about the 15th day of Nisan, on the very hill that Isaac was. In fact, um, Gary Burge, again, in his commentary says that Isaac was held up as a model who accepted voluntary death. And then moreover, when the phrase God himself will provide the lamb became the basis of lamb sacrifice, and generally leading Jewish interpreters in the first century to compare Isaac's near sacrifice with the Lamb of the Passover story. So just as Isaac carried his own wood, Jesus carried his own cross. And then, again, I really like some of the things that Gary Burge wrote which is why i'm quoting him so much but he says thus as we view the view christ dying on the cross we too at once should reflect on the benefits of his death for our lives as judaism viewed the lamb whose blood in the exodus story saved them from certain death and led to freedom from captivity so too jesus death brings protection and freedom and life And then he continues, we cannot simply be enlightened by Jesus. We must see ourselves as saved, rescued from a crisis as terrible as slavery to the Egyptians. The pathos of the Passover story, its grim tale of slavery and the thrill of its redemption must be recreated in our hearts if we are to appreciate the depth of what John saw as he witnessed Jesus dying on on the cross that Passover season. It's tempting for us to become so familiar, to sing so many songs about the cross, to monthly celebrate the Lord's Supper as we will in just a few moments, and, and not truly let it sink in. Jesus took our payment just as the Passover lamb took the, became the replacement for the firstborn. The judgment that we deserve is passed over us and is placed on Jesus. He fully paid for the just consequences of our sin, which is death. He then provided the Spirit as a means to help us walk in the power of his death and the resurrection so that we might move toward holiness and sanctification. This is a a sacrifice worth celebrating. It's a replacement worth considering. It's a life worth giving everything for even though the cost to us is relatively minor. But there's one, th- one final thing that John seems to point to as being finished. And that is, and, and the phrasing of this, I, I, I don't like how I worded this, so forgive me, please. But the verification of faith is finished. And what I mean by that is throughout the book, Jesus, or John has been saying, I saw this, I saw this, I saw this. In fact, we're going to see it a little bit when Ermal when preaches about the resurrection and then the final week in our study of John, we see it one more time. But John keeps pointing people back. I saw this. I witnessed this. It is believed that John's first century audience were people in, in Ephesus, which is modern-day Turkey. Some were Jewish background believers, and we suspect that th- some of those people were, were moving away from the cross, they were going back to the things that they were believing before. Others were Greek Gentiles who, who wrestled with the common philosophies of the day, things like Gnosticism and stoicism and docetism. And all of these philosophies held differing views on the nature of flesh and divinity. And the fact that Jesus Christ, we believe, is fully God and fully human became a huge factor for some of those early controversies. So that's why throughout the gospel, throughout the book, John has been saying, hey, this guy is God. He is divine. He was the word of God made flesh. He is fully human as well. In fact, look at John 19.35. This is after Jesus' side had been pierced. John writes, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. Here we are sitting almost 2,000 years later. We, none of us, no, no one on earth is alive to be able to have seen that. So all we have is the testimony that has been passed down from those first eyewitnesses. But it's as though throughout the gospel, he's saying, who but God can do these signs? And then as he's on the cross, he's saying, who but a man would die and bleed like that? So in Jesus Christ, you have both. Today, I think I mentioned, we mentioned a little bit last week, we're lighting the Advent candles kind of subversively this year. Last week, we, it's supposed to be over there. I know, we're doing it over here. Um, so last week, we lit the candle of hope, and we will get to readings. Christmas Eve, don't worry, 6 o'clock, you can come, but last week we lit the candle of hope, today is the candle of faith. And I think part of the reason the candle of faith is there is that it's a candle that calls us to believe, to trust in who Jesus is and what he came to do. That John bore witness to that. He bore witness so that you and I would believe. He's calling us to believe. He's calling us to trust. So in closing, let me just challenge us, brothers and sisters in Christ, do you grasp all that Jesus has done for you, all that he has accomplished for you and me? Will you celebrate and joyfully proclaim the life he sacrificed for you? Our whole society is gonna be celebrating Christmas and we have already kind of started, right? Do they really understand Do they hear it from us? Will they see from us why we celebrate Christmas? Because ultimately, we celebrate the the cradle, the manger, because of the cross. But I want to encourage you, too, if you're not yet a follower of Christ, will you believe? Do you see all that Jesus endured? He didn't just do it because he was a glutton for punishment. He did it willingly to pay for your sin and mine. Will you believe? Trust him. Have you trusted in his finished work? Showing up to church is cool. You get to hear, hopefully, good things. You get to sing cool songs. You get to spend time with some great people. But if all you do is sit and listen and leave, you miss the point. Do you believe? You see, it, when Jesus said, it is finished, and breathed his last breath, he was literally, I believe, saying, it is finished, and it always will be. There's no need for him to go to the cross again. In a few moments, Carl's going to lead us in the Lord's Supper. And, but before, before he does that, I want us to sing a song together. I know we don't normally finish sermons this way. But if you have your hymnal, grab a hymnal in front of you and turn to number 56. In the passage that um, Brian read, the title, Man of Sorrows, was given to Jesus Christ. And this hymn, Man of Sorrows, what a name, is a glorious picture of who Jesus is. So we're going to just sing it together a cappella. We'll sing all five verses. And this is really retelling the entire story. But I pray that as we hear, as we sing together together, the testimony of what Jesus Christ did, why he died, and the fact that he will come again. May we be encouraged and may we be challenged. So let's stand together as we sing this.
1: Here we go. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came where are you and sinners to reclaim hallelujah what a savior bearing shame and scoffing rude in my place condemned he stood Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we. Spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement, can it be hallelujah what a savior lifted up was he to die it is finished was his cry Now in heaven, exalted high, hallelujah, what a Savior. When he comes, our glorious King, all his ransomed home to bring, Then anew this song will sing, hallelujah, what a Savior. Amen. Jesus, we are in awe
0: of you, our Savior, our Redeemer, our eternal King. May we honor you with every fiber of our being, every breath that we breathe, every action we take. May we represent you well. Thank you for all you endured on our behalf, our King, our Savior, our Redeemer.